Hi, I'm Amelia Torres, and this is Shaping Sapiens. Ever since I can remember, I've always been fascinated by travel and by meeting people along the way, getting to know them and listening to their stories. Makes sense why I'm doing this podcast. (laughs) For me, these people are like gems that I get to collect each time I'm on a new adventure. In 2015, I embarked on a year-long series of trips that I had no idea at the time would become a year-long thing. And one of the gems I got to meet that year is our guest today. Josh Wagner is a playwright, poet, and author of six works of fiction who grew up in Missoula, Montana, and we crossed paths because I met someone who knew someone who recommended him as someone I should meet, and that, my friends, is what makes traveling so magical. Josh also shares a deep love of travel, of community, and of course, of stories. If you're lucky enough to know Josh, you know he's got one of the zaniest minds and the most golden of hearts. And if you don't know Josh, don't worry, you're about to. Josh sat down with me all the way from Scotland for this interview, and by the end, I was reminded of the thing he's always taught me, that the key to a good story is always vulnerability. Before we begin, please note this is an adult conversation and may not be suitable for children. So, without further ado, please welcome my dear, dear friend, Josh Wagner. Well, Josh Wagner, I'm so excited and I know I just, uh, this has been so many, I feel like it's been so many years in the making as I have looked Mm. up to you for so long and you have been a family mentor friend to me since day one and I just appreciate you and all the things so I have all the feels right now and getting (laughs) to speak with you and learn more about you (laughs) so welcome oh well it's great to be here I'm enjoying following your show and uh, always thrilled to see the way that you light up in when you engage with people and with the world and you just have this innocence about you that, I mean, I know you're not an innocent person. Um, no. you're very wise for your <laughs> years, but, um, you just have this joy and that bursts forth and it's, you know, it lights up the room. It does that thing. Hmm. So thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. That's what you get for complimenting me. Okay. It's gonna come back. I'll take Revenge. it. Well, my first question to you is probably the most obvious one. Uh, When did your love of writing first begin? My pat answer for a long time has been, and it's true, it's not that I I made this up, is that I can't really remember a time not wanting to be a writer. It's interesting when I started going to school, grad school, particularly this year, I have asked people in my department that, and several people have had the exact same answer. So... I don't know if that applies just to passions in general or if it's a writer thing or what, but I guess a lot of us are just, quote, born that way. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds a little cheesy and pretentious to say that, but but it's true. I was I was writing stories. You know, I've, I've got this box of old books and I've got this old Dr. Seuss book where you write about everything that's in your house. You know, we have 17 spoons. My father has three belts. It's a silly book. But in the back, Mm. it says, now write your own story today. And and I was, I don't know, four years old or something, whenever I first learned how to write. And I wrote the story. It is a plagiaristic retelling of uh, The Empire Strikes Back. (laughs) But but it is a story. And then shortly after that, I I got this cloth-bound notebook. And I wrote uh, Voltron fan fiction at the age of maybe five. It filled the whole notebook with these stories. 
and I guess I don't think it's weird. I think probably a lot of people, we're all storytellers in one way mm-hmm. or another. And I think a lot of people have this just bit me and sunk its teeth in and never let go. You know, I want to tell you that I was doing research on you the other night. And by research, I just was scrolling through your Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's research these days. That's exactly. awesome. Okay. I just wanted, I was looking for um, the degree that you were getting and I couldn't find it. So I'm going to ask you, what's the degree that you're getting uh, before I make my next point? It's a creative writing degree. Wow. Playing, it's, which is wonderful because it's essentially all I have to do is read books and write fiction. One interesting fact about this degree is that it's called an MSc, hmm. which is a master's of science Yes, in creative writing. And I found that kind of interesting. I don't know why they call it that. I, we have not been in a lab yet, <laughs> so, but uh, I'll take it. It's quirky. Well, while I was going through your Facebook, there were some, there was a couple of things that were standing out to me. It's one, how funny you are. And I don't know if you know how funny you are. But you're pretty <laughs> funny. <laughs> okay. I find the things that some of the things that you post just so delightful, and I just find myself laughing. And at the same time, I'm not the only one. There are other people that that I was reading in the comments, and just how much people love you. You have mm. so many people that love you, that follow you, and I was wondering if, like, do you know that? Um, my partner tells me that. <laughs> uh, I I choose not to believe it because. I'm shy and it's embarrassing. Yeah, I, I do. I I think that I, you know, I was raised to believe that family, friends, and community were more important than anything. Hmm. And so as I got older, I started to apply those values to developing friendships and forming relationships and building strong community. And it's been really rewarding. And I've been really fortunate. I mean, a lot of my best friends I've known since high school or before and they're still my best friends to this day i've been lucky to meet the good people i guess or some of them obviously i haven't met all all of the good people but that's another thing that i've learned is that as i traveled around you know i had this i wouldn't call it an elitist attitude towards my friends back in montana but it was just like surprising like how could i meet so many brilliant people all at the same time in a small little town of 15,000 like it seemed the odds seemed impossible so I would brag about that Um, (laughs) how much I love this how great these people were and they still are and and yet when I started traveling I kept meeting amazing people and it was like oh we're everywhere for me it was like the best thing ever was being one of those people that got to meet you on your travels oh yeah (laughs) that's a that was really cool yeah I think it's the only time that that's happened well, tell me about your travels and you got bit by the bug early on. Mm-hmm. I thought I was a homebody for a long time in California. I thought this is where I'm going to live the rest of my life. <laughs> I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to live in Santa Cruz. And then we moved to Montana and I hated it. Aww. I hated it. And it took years of adaptation, I guess, to realize how wonderful Western Montana is. And then when I was about 16, I got the opportunity to go visit Japan for the summer mm. because my grandparents lived there. And um, my grandpa's, it's a whole story. He was he was born and raised there. And so when he retired, he wanted to go back. So they were living there teaching English. They said, why doesn't Josh come out? I went out and that was a, a lot of bug biting happened in Japan, particularly on two fronts. Uh, one was food. I was always a really picky eater. I was 
my mom would make fun of me because all I ate was hot dogs and pizza, I guess, as a kid. <laughs> and even even then, it was like hot dogs and ketchup, like no bun, chop them into pieces. That's all I want. Uh, no like relish, mustard, none of that. <laughs> it's just like the most boring, plain form of boring, picky kid food you can imagine. And then my grandpa took me out to this dinner. They were giving him, uh, his students were throwing him a celebratory dinner. And it was at this fancy Japanese restaurant. We all sat on the floor. Course after course of sushi came out. And I was just like horrified. <laughs> uh, sushi, that's raw fish. I barely like cooked fish. Of course, I had to try it, and it was delicious, as everyone knows who has tried it and loves it. And I came home and just, I started devouring everything I could get my hands on. Wow. So that intersected with the whole, you're 16 and now you're super hungry thing, and <laughs> I wanted to eat all the exotic food. And then at this on the same trip, the other sea change was that I was really short growing up. I was probably the smallest kid in my class. Aww. Really short, really shy, spindly kid. I spent two years in... Santa Cruz before we moved to Montana at the ages of s seven and eight, I think maybe you're eight and nine, deeply in love with this girl who did not want anything to do with me. Mm. So it became this huge romantic and then my heart was broken. And then through high school, it was the same way. It was like, girls aren't into me. But in Japan, and this is going to come off like barely stereotypical, but I wasn't the short kid in Japan. <laughs> it wasn't even that. It was, I mean, particularly, I think during the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of fascination toward the West. Mm. And so I had a lot of female attention, not in like a racy way, but in just like a doting way. Because mm. my grandma had all these students and they all came over and like would talk to me. And then there was one moment walking down the streets of Tokyo. My grandpa and I walking side by side and coming towards us was this tall, she must have been six inches taller than me. This beautiful Japanese woman walking hand in hand with her boyfriend. They cross paths and I look back and she's looking back at me, oh. boyfriend oblivious. And she's just giving me this look. And that moment is seared into my brain and my confidence went through the roof. <laughs> so when I came home, I was able to be like a normal, functional dating person. Dateable? Dateable Date person. <laughs> I don't know. So Japan did that. And wow, that was a tangent. That's not really so much about travel, but that's how I guess how another country can affect you. Yeah. There were so many other reasons why you should go to Japan. <laughs> and, and I know that just recently, what I've gathered is that the, you had a recent travel where you sort of went all around the world. And in my mind, I thought, oh, Josh, Josh is going to end up in Japan and he's on a search for a story that's going to end in Japan. Is that true? Yeah, that's a really nice romantic way to put it. I, I did. I, I circumnavigated the globe for the first time where... I went one year in Europe, hopped, I did a, a visa hopping sort of situation. So I was on a tourist visa in different zones where it was legal to be so until that expired and then moved on to the next one. And then when I had done a year in Europe, I went to Asia and I was almost a year there. And yeah, it was it was to get to Japan where my current collection of books is taking place and I need to go back to finish it up at some point. Yeah, that was the main reason for being and there. What What is the, the story about or the series? It's called The Changing Things, mm. um, which is a translation of a Japanese word, bakemono. And bakemono is a type of monster, sort of a classification of monster that transmorph. So the changing, they're changing things. Mm. Um, so it can be all sorts of type, you know, types that can be good, that can be evil, that can be whimsical, mischievous. Um, but it's anything that, that transforms. So like a tanuki, 
for instance, would be considered a bakemono because they can take on the form of men and like foxes can change into people. So yeah, that's just the title. It's a story about a bunch of expats who live in Japan Mm -hmm. from all around the Western world, basically. And they all have a sort of shared delusion. They believe that they once were these bakemono or yokai, which is a more general term for monster, in, in their old lives, and that they had made a pact to shed their magical abilities, become human, and die, because they wanted to die. They wanted to stop being immortal. And then something happened, and, and they all have started to remember that this is their situation. So they all live together in Japan in an old dilapidated theater building, and it's sort of a sprawling story there's a lot of characters there's more than one main character it doesn't take place just in japan it has it's set in various parts of the world the political situation they're dealing with is essentially an american political situation i'm not trying to write about japan because i'm not japanese i don't have that background or experience i'm trying to write about western expats but setting it in a place like japan with a backdrop of japanese mythology which is essentially being appropriated by these people for their own delusion. Wow, how amazing. That's a book I would want to read. Cool. Yeah. Well, I hope that I finish it someday. It's been <laughs> it's been a challenge. It's been a long time coming, mm-hmm. and it's five books. Wow. It's not a series. It's five books, each in a different genre with a different approach, and they all center around the same theme, characters, topic, and they're meant to be read on their own or together for the bigger picture. You once told me about your process in writing and that when you're writing, you don't really, you don't see images in your mind. It's sort of like this black screen. Can you tell me more about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was, this was something I wasn't even aware of for a long time. And it, it first came out of a conversation about reading. My friend Brad and I were on a walk and he just said something about some book that he was reading and how he's like, and I just see it all so clearly. And I'd heard this phrase before and I assumed that it meant something to me. And, but for some reason I, I probed deeper. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, I just, if I close my eyes, I can see the movie of this happening. Like I can picture it playing out. And I was like, what magical power is this? Like how, how is that possible? And he looks at me like I'm a crazy person. He's like, what do you mean? You don't get that? I was like, no, I don't get that at all. I mean, if I close my eyes, I can sort of see some like outlines and shapes and then it's still just black. You know, they, they sort of want to emerge and then they go away. But I've, I've actually had to reach that point through practice. But then I found out this is kind of everybody sees images in their head when they read. And I'm really jealous uh, I think I think it explains a lot about the kind of books I like to read and how much I love movies and theater. One really nice thing, though, is that it doesn't seem to have negatively impacted my writing. In fact, it may have a positive effect. I remember when we had this conversation, Brad said, you know, your first book, The Adventures of the Imagination of Periphery Stowe, I love it because it gives me like the most vivid images I've ever got from a book in my life. Wow. And I was like, that's awesome. I have no idea how that happened. The more I think about it, I think if I had these strong images in my head, I might over-describe. And I think maybe I, this is my theory, is that I don't over-describe when I write and that allows the reader the space in their mind to fill in their own blanks. And so when I teach writing, you know, I, I like to talk about the importance of balancing 
what you give the reader and what the reader brings to the table themselves. You know, your job as a writer, I think, is to provide a framework, a detailed framework in which the reader's imagination can play. And I think that might have something to do with it. I mean, my imagination plays when I read, but not in a visual, visual way. So I don't know if I'm speaking from experience here or not, but it seems right. Doesn't it sound right? I like it. And I was going to say, that's what you're teaching me now as we're, <laughs> as we're working together. And it makes so much sense. I just love it because it it does bring this vividness out. And I was just in my the writing that we worked together on, I found myself like, oh, this is interesting. It just feels more real. And it just feels like it kind of comes off the page more. And I'm wondering who have been some of your biggest inspirations in writing? Mm, well, as a kid, I was a nut for Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, as I know a lot of people are. And then I got into high, uh, high school and I, w I went crazy sci-fi. Uh, my friend Josh introduced me to Robert Heinlein and that's opened up the sci-fi can of worms for me. College, my mom bought me uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Oh my God. Which I always thought, oh, that's a bore. It was always presented as like one of the most boring and yet most depressing books. And I remember one day huddled up in the kitchen in the apartment at night on the floor reading this book with my, like my hands just clenching it wow. and, 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 and feeling like I have never been so physically affected by a book in my wow. life. So he became my idol for a long time. I feel like maybe every five years I, I transition into a new idol for writing a few years ago it was david foster wallace mm. and then now now i don't know so i'm getting i feel like i've entered a sampler plate phase as far as reading i don't have like a superhero floating in front of me for the first time in a long time mm. i'm looking for the looking for my next superhero writer i guess yeah i feel like you're in that space of discovery and exploration especially being in your creative writing program master's degree now your master's of science program yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i'd like to go back to talking about community you know we've talked about how how much your friends your family have been so important to you and i know that your mom was a huge influence and such an important part of your life and i never got i never knew her personally but i heard stories and i could see her presence and i mm -hmm. understand she was quite the firecracker right yes <laughs> yeah she had a what they call a personality. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she had. Nice. But she was uh, she was also very subdued and like she would have loved the UK hmm. because she had a dry sense of humor. <laughs> she did not. She would when you crack a, a joke, you don't have to crack a smile. She was that kind of person. And you could wonder, was was she joking? Is she serious? Because she had this perfect. <laughs> deadpan face Aww. but she had a really rich sense of humor and curiosity and brilliance about her speaking of hero worship yeah she's my hero 100 percent mm -hmm. and when i grew up she was the one who took a, the deepest interest in wh whatever i was doing i mean whatever crazy thing happened to catch my attention she would study it she would read up on it mm -hmm. even if she didn't understand like i got in a quantum physics in high school because it was really cool <laughs> and my mom was like and this was in this was the early 90s she had never heard of quantum physics before I was reading some books she read one of them she mm. sat down and read it so that so she could talk to me about it oh. I was in got into Kierkegaard in college in philosophy and she read a Kierkegaard book 
Wow. And this is, whenever I tell this story to mothers or people who are thinking they might be mothers someday, they always say, oh, that is, that's it. That's the thing I'm going to take. I'm stealing that. Um, <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. yeah, it was really valuable. It, it not only made me feel special as a son, but it did enrich in our conversations. She's the one who taught me to be curious, to love nature. She, I think she's the one who got me into Tolkien and Lewis. My dad probably had a hand in that too. And when I wanted to be a writer, sometimes you're like, I'm going to be a writer, mom. And <laughs> Why don't you get a real job, honey? Uh, <laughs> never. It was always like, yes, that is what you're going to do. Mm. And you're going to be amazing at it. So, yeah, wow. she was the best. I know that she just passed away a, a year and a half ago or so. Is that right? Yeah. End of last October. And that's when you were finishing up your, your trip to Japan. Or yeah, yeah, it was coming to an end. Is that right? Yeah, I had one more month before I was going to come home uh, for Christmas. And I was uh, living in Osaka alone. I'm, I'm wondering how much to talk about this because like, I feel like if I start talking about it, it's like I got to just tell the whole story. The floor is yours, my friend. Okay. I will tell the whole story. So I had been gone for almost two years at this point. And we had hoped to see each other again in Germany because her husband at the time was battling neuroendocrine cancer, which he had had for several years, and her life had become healing him hmm. some way, somehow. They were so deeply in love. They, they went on adventures together. He was a motorcycle guy. Hmm. Uh, they would ride the Harley all the time and, uh, you know, take cruises and do all sorts of stuff. Mom had a clinic. She's a nurse practitioner. She is, was excellent at her job. She was very well loved in her community. She was one of those doctors who really cares about her patients. And she would work long hours. She would be available to talk to people after hours. The biggest thing that she hated about working for institutions was that they had an in and out policy. Hmm. You know, roll those patients over. 15 minutes, get him out the door. She thought that was absurd. She's like, this is not how medicine works. This is not how healing works. Mm. So she opened her own clinic so that she could do that. But he became her real medical focus um, for after hours. And the doctors had given him six months and she got him to six years. And in year seven, things were getting harder, more complicated. He was heading downhill they ended up coming to Germany while I was living in Barcelona, and it really sucks that I didn't get on a plane and go over there. I could have. I'm scared of airplanes. I will only get on a plane when absolutely necessary, wow. um, but I should have. I shouldn't have let my fear keep me from doing that. Flew to Japan, lived there for a while, lived in China, went back to Japan, was going to be coming back in a month and and I was not doing well. I was I was really lonely. Uh it was the it was probably the darkest month that I had have ever experienced traveling mm. being on the road. I was going out, I was binge drinking, uh which is not something that I usually do. I didn't really know anybody. It was hard to make friends in Japan. I would just kind of go out and hang out by myself and drink. Mm. It's ridiculous. And then I'd stumble home and I'd cry and 
And I remember I wasn't suicidal at all, but I remember having a few nights where I just like, I should just fucking kill myself. Like mm-hmm. this is it. So it was really dark and I wasn't re- really reaching out to anybody about it. And I don't know why I bring that up. I maybe cause there's a parallel here, but mom was going through darkness too. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't seeing that at all. And I think it's, connected to how I wasn't reaching out, neither was she. I think we had that in common. And she was just being the strong one. You know, they had taken Steve to a new treatment in Colorado, and it it really went downhill. Um, Mom was blaming herself for how bad the surgery went, even though she had nothing to do with it. The doctors basically said, there's nothing more we can do that all we can, all you can do now is take him home and keep him comfortable. Mm. And I remember being like, mom, what is, how are you? Are you okay? I will come home if you need me to. And she's like, you're going to be home in a month. It's okay. You know, we'll be fine. And I, I just had all of these dreams for coming home. Like, okay, it looks like if Steve doesn't make it, mom's going to be alone. Maybe we can spend the winter together. I'll stay in Montana. Maybe we can travel together. You know, whatever. But things got worse and worse. And her quest to save this man that she loved was hopeless. And she lost hope. And she took her own life one night um, out on the property. And the way it went down... It was day for me in Japan. She sent a lot of people Facebook messages that day. She said, just wanted you to know I love you. I'm proud of you. And that was it. And this was not weird because that's the sort of thing mom would say every few weeks, few months. She would pop in and express her love for me. And, you know, I said, I love you too. You're a great mom. I'm really grateful that I got an opportunity to tell her that at the last minute. But when I got off Facebook and went for a walk, I started just to feel like something felt wrong. And I was walking through this. There was a cemetery, a Buddhist temple cemetery across the street. And I was walking through the cemetery. And I just was feeling like heavy. And I opened up my phone again and I went on Facebook just to see and I saw a message, a post from her that said, well, Facebook was fun. And and then a chill just went through my body and I was like terrified. So I reached out. I tried to get a hold of uh, Steve's kids. The res- result or the response I got back was we're looking for her now, which was terrifying. Um, I went back home. I drank whiskey. I waited and I waited. And when I finally got the call, Steve called me himself. It was just like the most, I mean, there's no, I could spend my life trying to write the horror of that moment. And it, it's impossible to describe at the same time. It's so vivid in my memory. I should be able to, but it's just, it's seared there. It's burned. I mean, me in this apartment screaming, like in Japan where everyone's quiet, you know, I called, I got my flight, my flight 
changed, moved up, but it was going to be three days. So I spent these three days alone in Japan and I wasn't really alone because a lot of people were communicating with me. I constantly had access to friends. There was this, this beautiful group of, of friends who just were just on me like 24 mm-hmm. seven checking in. And, um, but I, I decided in that moment, this was something so horrible that I could never have conceived of it and never even imagined it possibly happening. And, and then on top of that is all the guilt, right? I felt all this guilt because I knew she was going through, I could have gotten on a plane and gone home. Mm. Could have, it was not out of the realm of possibility. But I remember telling myself, I'll be home in a month. She'll be fine until then. But I, I really felt hideous about it. I remember calling her best friend and saying, look, I don't want you to argue with me. I need to say this right now. But I killed my mother. I am responsible mm. for this. And and everyone was pretty cool about letting me say that <laughs> because I, I really needed to, I think. And I don't believe that anymore. But um, But it was all part of my grieving process. And I decided that I needed to go headfirst into the grief. And that was how I was going to deal with it. I was not going to, I didn't have people to hug. You know, I didn't have anyone to sit with. It was just me and the person who was the most important person in my life gone, her memory. We were going to hash this out. And what I did, I had, I had a little half of a hit of LSD Mm. And I took it and I went for a big walk and I started to trip and I came home and I sat in my bed and I lay down and I thought to myself, I can time travel. I can fix this. I'm going to go back in time. I'm going to go and I'm going to stop mom from doing this. And I went back there and I imagined the scene and, and this is a thing. So on psychedelics, I can see images mm-hmm. in my head. Um, so I was able to visualize myself in the space that I thought it had happened, sitting next to her with her holding the gun and me trying to stop her. And I, all I, I, I knew in my like tripped out mind that all I had to do was visualize and imagine the scene happening a different way and she would be saved. That was the time travel that was going to happen. <laughs> so I tried over and over and over and over and I, I was able to, it was just like one of those sci-fi stories that you read or you see in the movies where they go back and they try to change the past, but they never quite can. Mm. It was very much like that in that, but it wasn't because I would do something to screw it up. It was just because my imagination would not allow it not to happen because it it was just too real, I guess. I don't know. Every time I would, we would start talking or we would start laughing or whatever, or I would even maybe get the gun away from her. She would have it again and it would be over. And it was, it was horrifying because every time it happened, I would witness it. I would see it, see, it was like I was there watching it happen. And and I was forcing this on myself. I don't really think as a form of penance because I did I did still feel responsible, but I think part of me knew 
that I needed to just confront all the hideous details. Eventually, I, I gave up. I stopped trying to, to save her. And instead, I shifted my approach to comfort, mm. to telling her it was okay. That um, that I understood that she was autonomous and if this is what she needed, I would be okay with it and hugging her and telling her I love her. And this is how the scenes started to play. And um, so ultimately, obviously I didn't go back in time and save my mother, but I think in a lot of ways that allowed me to heal a lot more rapidly than I might have otherwise. When I came home three days later, I got off the plane in Seattle and I was met there by friends who live there. And they looked at me and they said, Josh, you are so skinny. You're so skinny. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, I guess that's what grief does to you. Um, But it turns out it was something else. So I, I went through the process, you know, of going home, the thing that you go through and you, you get, well, you start diving into the, the legal matters and the, you know, meeting with friends and family and telling stories, all the things that follow death. And that got me through, I think it was two or three weeks to the memorial. This whole time I'm feeling People are telling me I'm skinny, continuing to do so. And I am suffering a very powerful thirst, insane, insane thirst, drinking something in my hand at all times, soda, juice, just like down in the juice. And I'm thinking this is grief. This is this is my body reacting to this horrible event. And I even looked it up on Google and I was like, yeah, dry mouth, thirst, that can be symptoms of grief. But after the memorial, I, it didn't go away and I... I went back to Seattle. I was going to go spend some time on the coast, relax on the ocean, try to decompress. And that's when it happened. I was I was there with my brother and his husband and some other friends. And I just got worse and worse. I spent a whole day in the bathtub one day. I uh, oh. started puking, still drinking like crazy. And then at night, they were like, should we, what should we do? We don't know what to do. And I kept being like, it's just grief. <laughs> I'm like out of my mind here uh you know the night maya slept in the bed with me to to look after me and apparently i i rolled over and i started eating like chewing on her arm like eating her oh my gosh this is some foreshadowing here because my body is in desperate need of something yeah caloric and uh (laughs) caloric (laughs) caloric and that night they they took me out on the beach in a wheelchair because i couldn't walk and I, f- I fell out of the wheelchair, just fell, and I, everything went dark. And my last memory is is falling, and it felt like I was falling forever, just down this dark tunnel, falling, 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 falling. And the next thing I know, my eyes are opening, and I'm in the hospital. And I'm surrounded by people. My dad is there. Some other friends came from out of town. Wow. And the doctor is like, Josh, you're okay. And my brother says, first thing I want you to know is uh, you're going to be able to travel still. And he was he's a very good brother. He knew that <laughs> that was the thing I needed to hear the most. Very important. 
And the doctor says, you know, you've you've gone through something called ketoacidosis, and uh, we've diagnosed you as a as diabetic. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? But it explained all the symptoms. You know, explained everything from the the dry mouth to the thirst to like wanting to eat somebody because I <laughs> get the sugar into my blood cells. Yeah, somehow. And and I remember just kind of coming back, coming out of very deep drugs that they had me on. And I had some pretty bizarre time experiences with those as well, uh, but it's irrelevant to what I'm to the story. But I remember them rolling me out so I could look out over the city. I'm sitting in the wheelchair, and this something just comes over me. And this is something that I have I've told people one to one one on one. I've never made this a public announcement or anything because it's a little weird and fucked up, but it's true in that this is what I felt. And my dad was there, and I summoned him over because I couldn't talk very loud and I I was weeping and I said dad I think mom saved my life and I think he said that he thought that too but the idea what that I had that was going through my head it wouldn't stop was that something intuitive something beyond language told mom that I was in trouble that I was sick but I was alone getting blitzed out of my mind in Japan not opening up to anyone and this day that I was in the hospital, I would have still been in Japan. And there's this tradition in our family that my grandmother started where you sleep your way through an illness. She has slept her way out of strokes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you get sick. Okay. It's bed for two days nonstop. And then you come out and you're fine. There's a chance that if this diabetes had kicked in, I would have just gone to sleep and never woken up. Wow. So the idea running through my head was that she somehow intuitively knew this and she was trying to get me home. And, you know, the thought itself is I don't I don't really believe that, but it's a story that helped me get through the next phase, I think, because she was her own autonomous person and her problems were her problems. You know, what she was going through is not all about me. You know, I am I'm the son. So mm. I. I think my ego is like, was was automatically saying, oh, my, my mom's whole life revolves around me. And I know that that wasn't true. But it was a story that allowed me to, I think, heroize her in a way mm -hmm. and also explain everything that was happening all at once. I still don't know whether the diabetes was triggered by her suicide or whether it was on setting uh, or coming on right then. I was drinking... I was already drinking a ton of orange juice. The dry mouth didn't happen until, as far as I remember, until the day after she died. But by the time I was home, I was already like 20 pounds lighter. People were noticing I was skinny. So it seems like maybe it was already happening and maybe I would have, would have died. So it's all nebulous and weird and mysterious in my brain. But these stories and these myths are, they're propelling my survival and they're keeping me going. And I, I go home and I start to, you know, con I continue to mythologize and I build, with the help of my partner, I build these stone circles yes. um, out in the property. And uh, I love stone circles. And I think that bringing mom to see the stone circles is, is something I always wanted to do. But then once we had it built, it was beautiful, just little, little stones, you know, maybe two, two and a half feet at the tallest. I thought, let's commemorate this. Let's like do something with this. And so we took one of the stones that had a little divot in it and aimed it at where Gemini 
would be rising mm. uh, during the night that she died. Uh, she was a Gemini. Mm. And so we sort of made it a solar ritualistic place. And I thought, well, hell, let's go all the way. And I called my friend, Catherine, who she lives in uh, Ohio now, but she's deeply enmeshed with the community. She's spent a lot of years living in Glastonbury, England, which is this r real kind of a culty town mm. um, that has, you know, they've, they believe that they're where King Arthur was buried. And uh, there's a lot of wow. really cool, weird witchy stuff that goes on there. And there, there's this hill called the Glastonbury Tour where a lot of druidic uh, ceremonies take place, rituals, celebrations, that sort of thing. So I was like, uh, Catherine is there. She was there at the time that we built this circle. And so I was like, can we do something to like connect hmm. these two places? And she's like, yeah, let's, I'll do a druid ceremony. And we did it over Skype. <laughs> I stood out awesome. in the circle and she found a spot in Glastonbury where she set up a standing stone and she walked me through this ritual. It's just really nice, basic ritual to, to bind the two locations together in commemoration of my mom. And I mostly did it because I knew I was going to be in England the following year because I'd been accepted into school yeah. and I would be able to be at her the site of her death for her anniversary. I wanted to be, I could be there though. I could mm. be in England. And so we set this place up and I said, okay, let's really nail this down. I'm going to dig up a stone from the circle, like a little rock, and I'm going to send it to you and I want you to bury it. Oh, no, no, that's not. I'm going to dig up a rock and I'm going to bring it over there and bury it. I want you to send me a rock from Glastonbury. I'll bury it under the altar on this stone. Hmm. So she did that. She sent me the stone. The stone I found was like a tiny little mirror image of the one that had the divot that hmm. showed Gemma rising. So that was kind of a cool coincidence. I buried her stone under the altar. The next year, I come to the UK. I start school. End of October is coming up. I take a train. I take a bus down to Glastonbury, a night bus. Wake up in the morning. And I get out. I've been to this town a couple times before. I love it. And I immediately go have breakfast. And then I start on the map that was drawn for me to go where the stone Catherine had dug up, was dug up from, where this, where her standing stone was placed, where she did the ceremony. And I'm going to bury my stone. So I go out there, drizzling a little bit. It's a really nice day, though. And when I get out there, I call Catherine up. I'm like, I just want to confirm I'm in the right spot. <laughs> Because it's pretty nondescript. It's like a farmer's field, basically. And she's like, yeah, that's it. The standing stone she had set up had fallen over. So I set up a new one. Mm. I found the exact spot. I buried the stone. And Catherine says, Josh, this is what I want you to do. I want you to ask one question. And before you leave that area, it will be answered. And I was like, shit, that sounds cool. I'll do that. <laughs> so I bury the stone. I spend some time just kind of talking to mom collecting my thoughts. And I, I'm staring at the ground where I, I buried this stone when I feel the sun hit me. And the clouds are parting now because it had been drizzling a bit. And I feel the warmth of the sun. I see the light change. And I think, okay, this is the time to get up. Is this, is this my sign? Uh, because the question I had asked, simple question, are you with me? Mm. That's all I wanted to know. Mom, are you with me? Well, I stand up and I turn around. And there is 180 degrees of rainbow oh. from one side of the horizon to the next, down across this far, far field. And I've never felt so giddy in my life. I was just like, this is so amazing. <laughs> yes, she is with me. She's here. Holy shit. So, of course, I have to tell everyone 
I take picture. I take pictures of the rainbow. Take pictures. Post post pictures on on Facebook. And the next beautiful thing that happens is people start responding with rainbows that they are seeing hmm. right then in different places in the world. Oh. In Hamilton, where I grew up, where mom died, the kids, her her husband's kids are posting rainbows. They're seeing them. Some friends of the family in the Caribbean somewhere are catching one on the beach. It's it's insane. So she's throwing rainbows out everywhere. <laughs> uh, it clears. It doesn't rain again all day. I spend the rest of the day walking around Glastonbury, going to all the sites that I would want have wanted to take and to have taken her, hmm. and just spending the day with her as best as I could. And it was a great day. It was a beautiful day. We saw some awesome stuff. And we get home in the evening. I'm staying with some friends, and I pull out my phone again, check my notifications, <laughs> and I see a message from Catherine. She says, Josh. Have you taken a close look at that picture you posted of the rainbow? I was like, no. She's like, look at it now. Look under the rainbow right now. And I looked under there, (laughs) and there's these little black clouds just like all by themselves. You've seen this picture. You can post this picture with the podcast if you want. Okay. Let the world decide. Definitely the first four letters. Wait, or the last four letters clearly of my mom's name are written in the cloud. And the first two, am I counting this right? So A-L, her name's Alexis. Uh A-L are kind of smudgy, but you can see them. You can force yourself to see them. A-L-E, the E is getting a little more clear. And then Mm X-I-S, the last three. The last three are just obvious as hell. And that, I'm talking about an S. That's a complicated and an shape. X. And an X. And an I with a dot. <laughs> and an I with the dot. Right? <laughs> so, and, and as I, I went through, because I took several pictures of that moment, but I could see sort of the progression of the, of the clouds forming, like going from a blob, taking shape into the name, and then the, the photo that stuck, the one that I posted, is the best. That's the clearest picture of it. And then that's it. That's all. That was the last photo I took. So in my mind, she was still writing it. (laughs) And that if I had taken one or two more pictures, I would have had the clear, like perfect Alexis under there. But life is just never that simple. So I'm I'm kind of appreciative for the nebulous um, ness. Anyway. Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) So that was life changing too and you know i've 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 shared that story with people who i feel needed to hear it you know because i'm not the only person who suffered greatly from mom's loss and she was very deeply loved and she meant a lot to a lot of people so i'm hoping that that story has helped them the way it helped me in showing me i i'm a skeptical guy i mean i do have a lot of magical thinking but i also am really into science and I believe in rationality. Um, I'm convinced she's she's here, or 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 out off on adventures. But she was here, and she'll be back. Writing her names when. in clouds and rainbows. Yeah. Oh. So that's a story. My goodness! Thank you. I have no words except just gratitude. 
you're so generous in sharing all of that and yeah yeah it's it's a that's the first time i've been able to tell that story from start to finish i think i'm sure i'm leaving stuff out but i think that that doesn't happen to everybody (laughs) who loses what they love and i'm extremely fortunate to have had that experience i'm extremely fortunate to have had the mother that i had and the relationship that i had and all i want to do now with the rest of my life is just like honor her and make my life a sort of you know testament to who she was something that i i told people after the memorial was that we're alexis now like we're her we're all that's left of her so we can either go off and be her from time to time you know manifest her in our lives or not and so that's what i want to do i want to be my mom sometimes not always (laughs) thank you josh for everything that you shared today thank you thank you and thank you for listening that's our story for today if you'd like to support research for neuroendocrine cancer in honor of alexis's husband steve you can visit netpatientfoundation.org to learn more about josh and his work you can visit his website joshwagner.xyz We'll be back again next month with another story. And until then, good night, good morning, good afternoon, wherever in the world you may be.